Uh, we are in First Kings, or excuse me, Second Kings, chapter seventeen, continuing our study of these wonderful historical books and seeing how they show us our great heavenly Father, our true King of Kings. Uh, this particular chapter is a very interesting one, only because not only is it one of the longer ones we've been in at 41 verses, but also it's interesting what the historian does throughout all of these 41 verses, which is essentially give a post-mortem report on the people of Israel. If you are a fan of criminal investigation shows or what have you, Law and Order and the like, one of the most pivotal scenes in any of those television shows is the scene when the detectives meet with the coroner. They have found their body or whatever that they're investigating of some such homicide. And the most important thing is to determine the cause and the time of death. Most criminal shows are revolved around that particular scene where the coroner is able to tell them they died this way at this certain time and then the detectives can go from there and find the bad guy. That's a really important scene. And that's just a silly way of just saying that 2 Kings 17 is essentially that but for the people of Israel. As the historian sort of functions as both detective and coroner, and he's analyzing and also at the same time reporting the ways in which God's people have just been ushered into this place and land of death. Because what we have here is very much the very end of the nation of Israel. Those ten tribes which broke away from God's kingdom all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 12, they sort of meet their very pitiful end right here. As they're snatched from their homes and taken off into hostility, living in foreign lands, the foreign lands of Assyria. And so, we might say, ends the history of the book of Israel. There's a little bit of a flicker of light for the people of Judah. We'll get to that in the next couple weeks. As there's a slight resurgence before their end comes for them too. The historian sort of hints at it throughout this chapter. But primarily his focus here on all of these 41 verses is to function just like that. A coroner showing the ways and the reasons and the whys of these people's demise. And that's what he's giving here. He begins at the very beginning right here in verse number 1. As he uh, reports of who's now the leader of the people of Israel. Who's now the king over this nation. As he says in the 12th year of Ahaz, king of Judah began Hosea the son of Elah, to reign in Samaria over Israel nine years. And he's not an upstanding king. He's not a good one to look to, if you don't have to go there. But in in chapter 15, we were told about how he assassinated his way all the way to the throne. He's been a conspirator all the times that he's been in power. And he continues this trend of sort of being a very fickle king. As he very quickly bows to the whims of whoever was the overlord of Assyria at the time. As he says in verse 2, And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel that were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. And Hosea became his servant and gave him presents. Tributes, gifts of deference. He's bowing the knee before this overlord of Assyria and and telling him, I will do whatever you wish, as you wish, O Shalmaneser. (laughs) And we've seen this a couple of times before. We've seen this already with the Israelites and then even last week with the king of Judah, bowing their knees to this Assyrian uh, tyrant. But here, Hosea shows that he's willing to go to 
a little bit lower. He's even able to stoop even lower than those other ones who have made sort of these contracts and these promises with this king of Assyria, as we're told that he even makes a conspiracy against Shalmaneser. Notice verse 4. And the king of Assyria found a conspiracy in Hosea. For he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and brought no present to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. So he's sort of reneging, going back on whatever deal he had made with Shalmaneser. And now he's making backdoor deals with uh, the king, the pharaoh of Egypt at the time, King So. Which I guess... The saying is true, once a conspirator, always a conspirator. And so now, here Hosea is conspiring not only with the king of Assyria, but now here also with the king of Egypt. Shalmaneser doesn't like it very much. And whatever they were threatening or conspiring to do, Shalmaneser was not a fan at all. And so he puts Hosea in prison and then proceeds to lead the siege on Samaria, the capital of Israel, as it says in verse 5. Then the king of Assyria came up throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years so they're laying waste to the land, so sort of slowly strangling out the people of Samaria, threatening them, threatening their very lives. You can kind of read about this if you read historical documents from the Assyrian, the Assyrian sort of manuscripts. But it's interesting, historical sidebar, uh, if you are a fan of sort of early civilization history, you might know that uh, there's this one king who followed Shalmaneser, Sargon II, who sort of takes claim for whatever Shalmaneser did. And in fact, there's this old inscription on an Assyrian document that where Sargon II is claiming, he literally says, Samaria I besieged and took, and 27,290 inhabitants I carried away. This Assyrian king is boasting about what he was accomplishing during the siege of Samaria. Whatever the case, I think some historians have debated over who really technically actually fulfilled the siege or accomplished the siege of Samaria. But either way, whether it was Shalmaneser or Sargon, it's successful. Samaria is overrun. They are taken over by all of the Assyrian army. And yet even more than that, all of the citizens of Samaria, the Israelites, the people of God, are ripped out of their homelands and taken off to live in the Assyrian empire, as it says in verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, king of Assyria, took Samaria and carried Israel away into Assyria and placed them in Halah and Hebor by the rivers of Gozan in the cities of the Medes. So they're taken out of their homes. Families snatched from the places where they lived. They were taken out of them and they were taken off to live in some foreign hostile country with even worse Cases than that, other people from other lands, other conquests of Assyria are now taken into Samaria and transplanted there. Look at verse 24. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sevarv, excuse me, Sepharvavim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria and instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. The long and short of that is the people of God no longer have a place. They've been taken out of it. 
This was something the Assyrians loved to do, by the way. This was sort of the way in which they conquered and made, yes, great conquests. They would conquer a land, take the people out, and then put, put, put other people in mixed with their own. Sort of making it already a, a land of their own choosing, one of their own territories. And then we have here this pause, I think, because this is what's become of the promised land. This is what has become of the place where God promised his people that they would live and they would dwell in this place that flowed with milk and honey. This idea of abundant blessing and flourishing. Now it's not even theirs. It's taken over by all these foreigners who have brought in all of their foreign liturgies and cultures and ideas and thoughts and philosophies. And I think this is the the cut, perhaps, of the historian that cuts the deepest That these who were promised a place are now displaced entirely. In a way, you could sort of see this as as the historian sort of trying to remind them that they're back in the wilderness again. Because they're ripped from their homes, they're taken back into the badlands. And why? Verse number seven For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. Because they had failed to keep their faith, to uphold their end of the covenant, we might say. To make God their exclusive God. They had failed. They had fallen away from his word. They had not made his word chief and uppermost in their thoughts and lives. And God warned them about this. Let me just read you this warning from Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28, because God... Gives them this warning that this is precisely what would happen. Deuteronomy 28 verse number 62 says this. And ye shall be left few in number. Whereas ye were as the stars of heaven for a multitude. Because thou wouldst not obey the voice of the Lord thy God. And it shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good. And to multiply you. So the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you. And to bring you to naught, and ye shall be plucked off from the land whither thou goest to possess it. And the Lord shall scatter thee among all the people from the one end of the earth even unto the other. And there shall be, and there shalt thou serve other gods, whither which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, even wood and stone. And among these nations shalt thou find no ease; neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest. But the Lord shall give thee there a trembling heart and a failing of eyes and sorrow of mind and thy life shall hang in doubt before thee and thou shalt fear day and night and shalt have none assurance of thy life. Not a happy word. Not a, not a joy-filled promise God was giving. It was a promise of warning. It was a promise of judgment. A promise of scattering. A promise that they would be displaced. They would live their days with no assurance. And here that word is coming to fulfillment. They've been taken out of their homes. Scattered. All of their hopes and dreams and the ideas of living a life full of blessing and abundance are completely dashed. And we might be satisfied to leave it at that. There's the story. People disobeyed and they got what was coming for them. 
But the historian doesn't leave us there. He doesn't want us to just stay on that particular point. And in fact, what he does for the rest of the chapter is explain. Sort of, yes, again, give this sort of post-mortem reports on why the people didn't just lose their land. They didn't just lose their homes. They lost everything. That's what the historian is describing. So I have three things for you this morning. And what the people of God lost. Three things which I think also point to what we lose when we too follow the pattern that is here set by the Israelites. The first this morning is the loss of purpose. The loss of purpose. One of the keys that I have found to be very fruitful for me whenever I'm trying to study a particular passage of scripture. uh, This is a little nugget I guess you could say. um, Is pay attention to all of the words that get repeated very often. When there's a word or a phrase that comes up multiple times, it's sort of the way of the historian trying to bold that. Before bold and italics, what would you do? You would just repeat something over and over again. And it would be one thing then for the historian to say in the first couple of verses of chapter 17 that, that Israel, the king of Israel, Hosea, bowed the knee to the king of Assyria and they were taken over and that was that. But notice what he does in verse 3 down through verse 6. And against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, verse 4. And the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hosea, for that he had sent messengers to sow king of Egypt and brought no present to the king of Assyria, verse 5. Then the king of Assyria came up throughout all the land, verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, and so it goes. You see what he's trying to emphasize, <laughs> In three short verses, he mentions the king of Assyria six times. In fact, throughout this whole chapter, he mentions him nine times, which is just to say that Israel had lost all sense of who they were supposed to bow to. They lost their purpose as God's people. To the point where now, at this very juncture in history, Israel wasn't even, they were a shadow of what they used to be under God's blessings. They were lost. They were swallowed up by their new Assyrian overlords. And rather than blessing the nations, they had become like them. Look at verse 11, or excuse me, verse 8. And walked, notice what he's saying. He's talking about the people of Israel. They had sinned against God. How did they do that? Verse 8, they walked in the statutes of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel and the kings of Israel, which they had made. Look at verse 11. And there they burnt incense in all the high places, as did the heathen. And look at verse 15. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he testified against them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the heathen that were round about them. They lost their purpose, these people did. These were the people of God. If you, you can scour, and I wrote the references down, but look at Genesis 12. Look at Genesis 18. Look at Genesis 26. Look at Genesis 28. All of those places are places where God, the Father, Yahweh, is giving to his people the promise that what? You will be a nation of blessing, and you will bless the nations around you. That was his promise to Abraham over and over and over again and to all of his descendants that you were my chosen people and through you I would bless the nations. And here, what do we see them doing? 
tragically following and falling after those who are around them. Those who caught their eye. Even after God brought them out of bondage, it did not take them long to go after other gods. In fact, that's the amazing thing, what the historian reminds. And in fact, this is one of the reminders that will recur throughout Scripture. Even to the days of the apostles, when they're preaching to the early church, they remind the people of what they were given by this God who delivers them. Verse 7, for so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against God, against the Lord their God, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they feared other gods. Even as the deliverer was working their deliverance, they followed other gods. And here they followed that path all the way to following the, as it says, the statutes of the heathen. And all of the, the ill-begotten religions that they proposed. They thought that the way of life that these others had around them was better. Better than the life that Yahweh had prescribed for them in his word and in his law. And it's interesting that even here we are seeing the human heart on display. When you want to do something that's wrong, even when you know it's wrong, what do you do? You do it a little bit secretly. You do it under the cover of shadows, perhaps under the, the covert of some lie. Well, look at verse 9. And the children of Israel did secretly... Those things that were not right against the Lord, their God. And they built them high places in all their cities from the fe- to the fenced city. Oh, excuse me, from the tower of the watchman to the fenced city. Secretly, they're trying to disobey the Lord. As if he's not aware of what they're doing. As if he's not sort of able to perceive the way in which they're falling away. And the ways in which they are actively rebelling against this word of the Lord. But instead here, they're doing as the heathen did, as that refrain pops up. Building temples, setting up idols, making high places for all manner of all of these gross worship services. As it says there in verse 10, And they set up them images and groves in every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burnt incense in all the high places, as did the heathen, whom the Lord carried away from before them and wrought wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. For they served idols, whereof the Lord had said unto them, Ye shall not do this thing. They were doing exactly what God had commanded them not to do. Had promised them that if you go this way, this can only lead to destruction. And they were, yes, let's go that way. (laughs) They were disobeying the Lord. And what was the result? What was the result of this path that they had sort of chosen for themselves? This path of idols and images and gross liturgies. Well, verse 15 again. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he testified against them. And they followed after vanity and became vain. This is a a damning sort of indictment on the people of God. That the things that they were pursuing, that the paths that they were following, it was worthless. It was nothing. It was drivel. And And in so doing, in following the worthlessness that these idols actually had, they became worthless themselves. 
They became purposeless as they chased after purposeless images and idols and things that they thought would give them meaning but left them empty and broken and devastated. They thought that perhaps these new ideas and philosophies, these very progressive sort of things that they could acquire and sort of import into their culture wouldn't hurt them. And yet, all that they bought was a heap of nothing, we could say. No place to call home, no place to call theirs, no place at all, and no purpose. My friends, this is what sin always does. What it did to the people of Israel is what sin always does to any life. No matter what you think sin is going to give you, it always takes you into a place of purposelessness. And you don't perhaps have that heading in your mind. That's not sort of the bearing that we choose. when we choose a life of sin and strife. But that's always the end destination. Because sin cannot lead to anywhere but into the badlands. It takes you out of the blessing of God. Choosing sin and choosing the way in which the the world perhaps wants to operate. The philosophies by which the world chooses to live by. Choosing to live in that lifestyle takes you out of the blessing of God and into the brokenness of your own choices. And the thing is, we don't ever set out that way. No one wakes up one day and just decides, unless perhaps there's something else wrong. But no one chooses to wake up one morning and says, you know what, I'm going to wreck my family today. You know what, I think today, today I'm going to become a drunkard. That's, that's my aspiration. Today I'm going to become a dumpster diving heroin addict. That's, that's my aspiration. Those are the eventual destinations that we arrive at when we've made a thousand and one previous decisions that take us away from God, that take us away from his purpose, that take us away from his blessing, and we find out and we end up resulting in, yes, wreckage and ruin and devastation. That's what sin does. It steers you to those spots. The more you give into it, the more you say along with each new decision, this isn't so bad. That's what Israel did. They didn't just suddenly wake up and decide, let's betray God today. You know what? That Asherah God, they have really cool worship practices. Let's go do that. It was one decision after another. One compromise after another. One sort of leniency on their sense of purpose of who they were. They were the people of God. Meant to dispense the blessings of God to the whole world. And they lost sight of that. And in so doing, they lost themselves. They lost their way. And decided to go their own way. And serve some other gods. Sin is the loss of God's purpose. But secondly, number two. The loss of presence. As it says there in verse 17. This incredible phrase. Notice. And they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire. And use divination and enchantments. And sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord. They're pursuing all these things. Magicians, sorceries, all the witchcraft, all that kind of stuff. As it said, they're enchantments. They're pursuing all these ways to find wisdom and purpose and meaning again and hope again. And those, 
Those are not really the point. The point of what he's saying is that these are the fruits of what is lying at the cause of the people's hearts. Their people's hearts had sold themselves to do evil. They were selling out. And yet, what were they buying? The only thing they were buying was the wrath of God, as it says there in verse number 17. They sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger. Verse 18, therefore the Lord was very angry. That's all they bought. Their investment in all these other schemes at finding hope and meaning and purpose and promise, it left them with just buying God's wrath. Culminating in this anger that he dispenses on his people. And eventually he removes them out of his sight altogether. Look at verse 18 again. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah only. Look at verse 20. And the Lord rejected all the seed of Israel and afflicted them and delivered them into the hand of the spoilers until he had cast them out of his sight. And look at verse 23. The Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants and the prophets. So Israel was carried away out of their own land to the, unto Assyria unto this day. This is the note of judgment that perhaps endures even to the people that were reading this history. Even to the Israelites who had been exiled. Perhaps this was the one that hits the strongest They lost their place, their land of promise, yes. But even more significantly than that, they lost their privilege to the presence of God himself. This was a devastating fate. They were out of the sight of the one who had called them, the one who had chosen them. It was a signal that all blessing had, yes, likewise been taken away. All hope, all favor, all assurance was gone. It was reminiscent. In fact, I, I can't help but think of what David prays in Psalm 51. Remember Psalm 51 is the prayer that he prays in the events after his sin with Uriah and Bathsheba covering all of it up, and he's been found out in this prayer, this song of repentance. And what is the notes that he prays there? Cast me not away from thy presence, he says. Because he felt that losing the presence of God was the worst fate that could befall anyone. And indeed, I think, what I think the historian is meaning to sort of emphasize and sort of parallel in sort of a rhyming sort of way, This violent act of Israel being ripped out of their own land, out of this land of promise, is sort of similar to what happened at the very beginning of history. When Adam and Eve were likewise too ripped out of the garden, forced out of their own land. And yes, at the same time, what did they lose? They lost the presence of God. They lost that fellowship that they so lovingly enjoyed. You see, there was nothing worse than for the people of Yahweh to lose the presence of Yahweh himself. And that's exactly what he here does. And what stands out perhaps are those very eye-opening words. The words of the historian to describe God as very angry. In fact, in the Hebrew, that just means he's fuming. 
breathing very heavily like a bull ready to charge. That's a very violent picture perhaps we have of God. And in fact, I would like to just pause and just say that plays into the popular notions of who the Old Testament God is. And I've emphasized this on occasion, but I'm always, I always snicker at the idea that there's this difference between the God of the Old Testament and the Christ of the New Testament. But the Christ of the New Testament is all love and, and warm blankets and fuzzy feelings. And the God of the Old Testament is this vindictive, violent, mean tyrant. Obviously, look, he's fuming at his people and he's kicking them out of their land. It plays right into this idea that the God of the Old Testament is a God with a half-inch fuse. That he's more than willing to just be act on his hot-headed, quick-tempered temperament. But I think that view is very distorted. Especially when you see what God sort of emphasizes through the historian here. Because remember all those things that the people were doing, all of the ways in which they were rejecting God. They're serving idols. They're pursuing other words, other words of promise, other words of hope, other ideas of spirituality. They are not just not doing the things of God. They are actively doing the things of other gods. And despite all of that, notice verse 13. And yet, well, let's read verse 12 again. For they served idols. Wherever the Lord had said unto them, ye shall not do this thing. They're directly doing the things God told them not to do. And yet, what do we find the Lord doing? Yet, the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets and by all the seers saying, Turn ye from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Even in the midst of all of this rebellion and rejection and refusal to listen, these people who had plugged their ears and says, no God, I'm not going to listen. What did God do? He sent them prophet after prophet after preacher after preacher to say, just turn around. Just turn, turn and look at me. You see, exile was not God's first resort. This was not his first sort of uh, thing that he enjoyed doing and bringing down on his people. He had no excitement of displacing his people from their land of promise. For 2 Kings 17 is not Yahweh flying off the handle, so to speak. At this sign of disobedience, this was the only recourse, we might say, after long and continued rebellion. Like when your kids in the back seat won't stop bickering. Eventually, the hammer has to come down. You can only say something for so long. And here, God the Father is acting very much in the same way. I'm reminding you, turn around. I'm reminding you, I'm right here, turn around. And the people of God continued, continued in this ill-begotten purpose, this ill-begotten path that was leading them to destruction. And despite all of that, the heart of God is on display because what is his heart? He wants them to turn back, to turn away from the way of the heathen and turn back to his way and his words. So he sends them all of these messengers. You can read the books of the prophets. Major or minor prophets, it doesn't matter. The refrain that repeats throughout all of them is turn, 
Turn ye, turn ye from your wicked ways. Stop, you're going off the edge, essentially is the message. Stop, turn around, I'm right here because this is the heart of God. This was his heart, is that his people would repent and turn, for, turn back to him because he was waiting for them. See, that's what is so amazing, is that even after all of these years of history, centuries of rebellion and disobedience, what does verse 13 promise his people? That God was waiting to receive them. I'm right here. You just got to turn around. They had lost sight of the presence of God, and so they, in their blindness of sin, thought that God was very far away. God's Too far out. I can't see him. We can't see him. He's probably forgotten us anyways. And the message of the prophets. I'm right here. Turn. Turn to me. He was waiting to receive them. As the prophets say. I think of Isaiah. Let me just read this verse. Because it speaks directly to this. Isaiah chapter 55. Verse number 7. I think is. One of the best messages for this very purpose where it says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord. Turn unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. Turn to our God for he will abundantly pardon. When you're turning around, you're not turning to some vindictive, mean old grumpy man who just wants you to get off his lawn. You are turning to your heavenly father who wants you to come and fall into his arms. And as he says, with me is abundant pardon, everlasting mercy. That's who's waiting. See, but the rejection of God's people is this refusal, this sort of, we could even say, insanity to believe the lie of sin. We're said that that's not the God who's waiting. Israel refused to listen to the pleas of the prophets, and so they decided to go their own way. And in so doing, they chose vanity, worthlessness. For the very presence of God himself. And again, this is what sin always does. Sin, choosing sin, choosing the way of the wicked, we might say. It always takes you out of the presence of God. Takes you out of his sight. Takes you out of his fellowship. Which is a very disorienting place to be. If you've ever been in a season of sin, perhaps you can say similarly. That you lose sight of that presence of God and everything feels lost and dark and dim. Out of the presence of God is simply a place of despair and defeat and ruin. And my friends, that's all sin can leave you with. That's all that it leaves us with. That's all that it can end and result in. Sin is, we could say, the willful loss of God's presence. It's the willful pursuit of some other purpose. But also, what do you lose? Lastly, number three, the loss of promise. The loss of promise. I don't think it's a stretch to assert that the people of Israel here at this particular moment had lost all sense of the promises of God. The word of God, the word of Yahweh, was nothing to them. They were influenced by Baal among several countless other deities. And such is why they were being carried away, as it says in verse 23 of our text. 
So Israel was carried away out of their land to Assyria unto this day. And yet to heighten this sense of disintegration and displacement, as we already read, the inheritors of this land of promise were none other than all of these foreigners, these transplants from other Assyrian conquests, as it reports to us in verse 24. These people were now dwelling where God's people were meant to reside. That's the note the historian is pushing to these people. And along with them, what did they bring? Well, verse 29, notice how be it every nation of gods made gods of their own. All of these nations who are coming into the land of promise, they're bringing their own gods and put them, as it says, in the houses of the high places which the Samaritans had made. And every nation in their cities, wherever, wherein they dwelt. And the men of Babylon made Succoth Benath. And the men of Kuth made Nergal. And the men of Hamath made Ashima. And I'm not going to read all the rest of those gods because I'm going to mispronounce them. And the point is not to look up all of what these gods meant or mean or what the liturgies were, might be of these very cultic deities. That might pique our interest, but the point is not to sort of devolve into all that. It's just to notice how much they were pursuing other people, pursuing other gods. And yet even now, how greatly Israel had lost everything. Israel was no longer at this moment in time a nation that was marked by the gracious choice of the Heavenly Father. What are they known by? They're known as the land that keeps making lesser gods. (laughs) They're making deities, making idols, making gods to bow to and fall on their face before. Whatever was left of their faith at this point had all but evaporated. They were a land that was overrun. Overrun entirely. And notice what the historian does in three separate occasions. Notice verse 23 again. Until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had said by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away out of their sight. Or excuse me, away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day. Look at verse 34. Unto this day. They do after the former manners. And then notice verse 41, the last verse in the text. So these nations feared the Lord and served their graven images, both their children and their children's children, as did their fathers. So do they unto this day. A sense of perhaps finality to those words, as the historian here includes them. Including all of the awful consequences that are abiding unto God's people. These are a result of all of those sinful choices that were made all the way back then. These words, I think, were being received by a people who were still displaced, as it says, unto this day. Who were still dispossessed from their homes and from their blessings and from the privileges that they were meant and designed and chosen to experience by God himself. They were far removed from all of that. Which is just to say that these words that the historian is here writing were first received by a people who had nary a sense of the promises of God. That was a distant memory to them. They had been in the exile lands of exile for decades. And yet here they can't even remember who perhaps made these promises in the beginning. This is what sin does. 
It takes you into a place, into the badlands. It distorts your memory so that God's promises don't just seem implausible. They seem impossible. And indeed, that's what sin is like. Choosing the life and the way of sin is like putting earplugs in. You can hear stuff. You can hear words, but they just sound like muffled noises. Everything is faint. Nothing is distinct. That's what sin does to the promises of God, often not. You see, I think this is the the enduring lesson of all of this historical record. All of these 41 verses of history that this historian brings us through. It's meant, I think, yes, predominantly to show us what sin does on a national level. For all of the people of Israel, they all felt these devastating effects. But I think at the same token, it shows us what happens to us when sin becomes our way of life on an individual level. It takes us out of the purpose and the presence of God and out of any certainty that his promises are ours. That's what sin does. That's the path of sin. This is the true side effect of exile and rebellion. It always takes you into the wasteland. Sin always leads you into the badlands. It lures you in deeper and deeper with the promise of greener grass and bigger plates full of pleasure. But what do you end up doing? All it leaves you with is chewing on cud. Which is okay for cows, but not for the church. <laughs> That's what sin does. It overpromises and underdelivers every time. It'll lure you in with this promise of happiness and fulfillment and joy and relief and meaning. And it leaves you crushed and broken and exiled. Is there hope for such sinners in such circumstances? Was there hope for Israel? Yes, there was. Notice verse 35. Well, let me read. Yeah, verse 35. With whom the Lord had made a covenant to these people and charged them, saying, Ye shall not fear other gods, nor bow yourselves to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them, but the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a stretched out arm. Him shall ye fear, and him shall ye worship, and to him shall ye do sacrifice. And the statutes and the ordinances and the law and the commandments which he wrote for you, ye shall observe to do forevermore, and ye shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I have made with you, ye shall not forget. Neither shall ye fear other gods, but the Lord your God ye shall fear, and he shall deliver you out of the hand of your enemies. You see this note? Of promise. This note of deliverance is still for them. It still endures. It still exists. Even for these people who had gone their own way. And rejected and spat upon all the words of God. What does he say to them? Turn from me. See me as the exclusive. The only. The only God to fear. Because I am the only God who can deliver. He's reminding them of the first commandment. Remember Exodus chapter 20, that you shall have no other gods before me. Again, he's reminding them of this incredible, momentous point on which all of spiritual life encircles, which is this 
notion, this truth, this belief that there is no other God but the God of Israel, but the God whose name is Yahweh. For us, too, there is deliverance. It's readily available when sinners put all of their hopes, put all of their lives into the hands of the exclusive Savior of the Lord. That's what Jesus says about himself, isn't it? John 14, verse 6, what does he say? That I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. The same notion of turning is turning to this Savior. Turning to God's only deliverer. The only one who can take you out of the place of exile and ruin and sin and bring you into the place of purpose and presence and promise. There's no other God who's worthy of your fear, who's worthy of your faith. than this God who is your deliverer exclusively. You see, this is the good news for us this morning. The gospel for us is that because of Jesus, all that we might have lost to the wasteland of sin is given to us in the power of his resurrection. All that we might have lost in former lives, Jesus promises to give us. And the hope of it all is that no one is too far gone for the Savior. There's no one here, there is no one who has ever existed, who is too far removed out of the presence of God that cannot be saved and delivered by this God who runs after prodigals. No one's too far gone for his hand to redeem. This is who God is. He delights in giving himself to people who have no other hope, no other option, no other purpose. He says, I am your God. Turn to me and I am your Savior. Turn to me and I am your Father. There's no other better example of this than Ephesians chapter 2. Go with me there and I'll close, I promise. Ephesians chapter 2. Perhaps one of the most seminal gospel passages in all of the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse number 4. As I think... What Paul does here is perfectly answer perhaps the things that we lose in sin. The loss of purpose, the loss of presence, and the loss of promise. This is what Christ comes to give us. Notice Ephesians 4, or Ephesians 2, look at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. Not of works lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them this is what God comes to give us in his son the son crucified on entry bleeding out for the likes of you and me what was he doing he was dying to give us purpose as it says quickened unto good works 
He was dying to give us again his presence, which shall never be taken away. As it says, we are quickened and raised and seated in Christ Jesus. And forevermore, we who are saved and united to Christ are sealed by his spirit. And that presence is never taken away. And he gives us that promise that he does all of this. Why? Because in verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ. He delights in just showing you what kind of God he is. That what flows out from, what oozes out of God's heart is this exceeding abundant river of grace and kindness. This is who our Savior is. This is who our Lord is. Sinner, turn. Sinner, turn from your ways, your wicked ways that are only taking you to death and destruction. They're only taking you into ruin. Turn this morning. This is who is waiting. This is who is waiting to greet you and welcome you into his arms. A God of abundant mercy and everlasting kindness. Turn, sinner. Your deliverer is waiting. Let us pray.